You're listening to For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. to another episode of For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd and this is For the Record. A few housekeeping rules, things, whatever you want to call them. We have a new intro song. I hope you guys like it. I spent two days working on that thing and finally decided that I was just gonna resort to keeping what was already there. I liked it enough, but I was really wanting to go with something a little more edgy, a little more kind of creepy, but not super creepy. And I think that the song that I was able to find was amazing. Um, It and the previous song both came from the website Upbeat for Creators. The link to this song and the artist and everything will be in the description of this episode, so please go and check it out. The song is called Northern Lights, and I think that it's just a really cool song. Wait till you hear the outro. I think the outro might be even better than the intro. So, there's that. I also want to apologize to you everyone for not having an episode last Friday. We had a death in the family and so we just kind of put everything on hold to go through that and deal with that. Um, I want to dedicate this episode to the person who we lost He would never in a million years, I don't think, listen to a true crime podcast, but I feel like it's something that I can do and show some remembrance and honor for him. Um, I'm not going to be saying any names, just for the privacy of my family and everything, but yeah. So, I'm also going to preface this episode by saying that I, in no way, have anything against religion. I've said in one of my previous episodes that I go to church, I sing on my church's worship team, I love God, He has radically changed my life. I have a very strong faith and I very much believe in the Bible, in God, in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit. I'm a very devout person in my faith. But whenever faith becomes more 
I don't even know the right word to say. Um, where do you draw the line between church and a cult? Where do you draw the line between biblical theology and brainwashing? What do you do whenever someone is using the Bible, using scripture to justify horrendous treatment of people? And this goes into a whole lot of other topics other than just true crime. But I don't know. I feel like I really just need to say this. I will not at all judge you or bash you if you're a religious person. I won't do it. I'm going to love you. You're welcome here. I want you to feel welcome here. I am also not going to bash you if you are not a religious person. I love you, I want you here, and you're welcome here. I don't care what your beliefs are. I don't care if you are black, white, green, purple, orange, whatever. I don't care what your sexuality is. I don't care if you identify as a lampshade. I don't care. Because that's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is about bringing awareness to cases, to victims, to people who deserve to have some recognition. But this case does involve religion, which is why I felt the need to preface this by saying all that. And I realized after reading over my script that even though all of this is based on religion, there isn't a whole lot about the religious beliefs of this family. So I did find that kind of interesting. So if it seems like I've left that out, I promise that I haven't. There just hasn't been a lot of stuff I've been able to come across that depicts and goes into detail what everything is. So to get the full picture of this case, we have to go back, all the way back to 1985. Now I know that 1985 doesn't seem like it was that far away, but I swear time keeps moving forward and I'm standing still. I don't know if that just happens when you hit 30 or what, but it is seriously, I feel like the early 2000s were just a couple of years ago. So to some of us, while 1985 really doesn't seem like it was all that long ago, it's been quite a few years and I hate to be the one to tell you that. So please forgive me. But moving forward, David Turpin was 23 years old when he met 16-year-old Louise. I know that things were different back in the 80s and age gaps weren't as big of a thing, 
but I don't know. That seems kind of a big deal to me. Supposedly they met at a church function. Louise was singing in the church choir and David just thought that she was the prettiest little thing. Little. Emphasis on little. Like, she was still a child and he was a full-fledged adult. So, yeah. Um... She could barely drive. She couldn't drink. She couldn't vote. She couldn't even go see an R-rated movie. And yet, here she was with this man who was seven years her senior, stepping into a world that would ultimately lead to her demise. I wanna clarify here, thank goodness nobody died in this story. This is the first survival story that I've covered and I'm really excited about that. But her demise was that she ended up in prison. So just wanted to clarify that. So Daniel and Louise met at church in West Virginia and shortly after meeting they eloped. I don't know if they eloped because her parents wouldn't sign the consent for her to get married. I don't know if they, if she maybe lied about her age. I really couldn't find anything on that. Um, so I'm just giving the information that I have and I didn't have anything on that. So they eloped and eventually they made their way to Texas where David worked as an engineer. And I believe it was four years after they had been married, they welcomed their first of 13 children, a daughter who they named Jennifer. Two years later, Louise would give birth to their second child and their first son, Joshua. The small army of children would continue with 11 more children being born between 1991 and 2006. I couldn't find names and ages for all of the children, only Jennifer, Joshua, and Jordan, who are the heroes of this story. And there was a little bit about Janetta, but I couldn't find an age for her. So, but from the looks of it, it seems as if there were a lot of J names. So don't get confused with the Duggar family. And I'm just gonna say, the Duggars are a family I will never talk about on this podcast. I'm mentioning it now, and that's it. No Duggars after that. So by the mid-2000s, the family had moved from Texas to California, making their forever home in Paris, California. 
I don't know California geography, so I'd never heard of this town. But after doing a quick Google search, I found that it is 71 miles south-southeast of Los Angeles and is an old railway town in Riverside County. I also didn't know what a railway town was, so I had to look up that too. And apparently a railway town is a town that was developed around where a train station or junction was located years ago. But I guess the more you know, so thanks Googled not sponsored by the way. So when the Turpin family moved to Paris, they wanted this to be the place where they would spend the rest of their lives. They made sure their home was safe from any and all quote unquote worldly things. And I guess if you're not a religious person, um, worldly things are things that are not of God, you know, drugs, sex, rock and roll, that kind of stuff. And so they really just wanted to make sure that their kids were protected from sinful influences. Now, I don't quite believe that everything out there is sinful and wrong. I listen to music that is not Christian music. I watch movies that are not Christian movies. My favorite TV show is The Office, okay? I say that's what she said to my husband every chance I get just because I think it's funny. So that may be kind of borderline for some people, but I think that it's really just about your personal convictions. I don't know. So the kids didn't have things like phones or computers or TVs and they didn't have access to the internet. And David and Louise really just wanted their children to grow up and be protected from the temptations of the world. Now, I would like to say that I think it's odd that out of all the places that you would go to protect your children from quote-unquote worldly things, why would you move to California where... That was like the epicenter of drug, sex, and rock and roll. You know? Like, wouldn't you want to move to the Bible Belt? Or maybe somewhere like, I don't know, Montana? Something like that. But that's, that's just me. That's just me. I'm just talking about the case. I wasn't the one who committed the crimes. So, David and Louise had a really strict household. Friends couldn't come over, and the kids couldn't listen to music or watch TV, and they eventually ended up being homeschooled so that they wouldn't be faced with the temptations of peer pressure. Uh, the oldest daughter, Jennifer, she did go to elementary school, I think, for three years but then the rest after that, um, she was taken out of public school and was homeschooled. According to the kids, they were not actually being homeschooled. It was just kind of a guise that the parents used to keep them home so that they wouldn't have to go out into the real world. Um, they weren't allowed to go outside. They weren't allowed to play with any of the neighbors. Uh, 
whenever the neighbors would occasionally see them out, it was always at night. And one of the neighbors actually reported that whenever she did see the kids, she thought that they looked like the vampires from the Twilight series because of how pale and frail they looked. So the kids were trapped inside their home. But that's not even the worst part. Because of their strict parenting and religious beliefs, David and Louise were firm believers in spare the rod, spoil the child. Now, I have seen this verse all of my life, and I don't necessarily think that the Bible means literally sparing the physical rod as in using a rod and beating your kids I think it means more so um, I think it's used more so as a metaphor for discipline like the rod of discipline not a physical rod and discipline is more than just beating your kids and severe punishments so that's my personal opinion you know I don't have kids though so I really don't know I just know that I wouldn't beat my children so while on the outside this family while odd seemed like a decent family none of the neighbors ever reported anything that would make them think that they were abusing their children or anything like that they you know they said that the family was strange that they were odd but you know they weren't unpleasant people whenever they would whenever david and louise would interact with some of the other neighbors they weren't you know these horrible people or anything like that they seemed really genuinely like nice people they were just a little bit strange but while the family may not have seemed like they were evil and corrupt abusers what was going on inside this house could only be described as a house of torture and a house of horrors and I just want to give kind of a trigger warning here. This is going to be talking about child abuse. It is going to be a little hard. So just a, a little bit of a warning there. So the food in the house was scarce. David and Louise had plenty of food that they could eat and they had what the kids called good food. They were able to, you know, go out to eat. They had um, frozen meals that they were able to eat, but all of the 13 children had to eat a piece of bread and peanut butter for most of their meals. If they got caught 
taking any food from their parents' stash, then they would be beaten. And then afterwards, they would have to eat ice cubes with ketchup and mustard for their meal. Which, I mean, come on. How, how can you even... I, I don't I don't even know. I don't even know. So David and Louise claimed that the children were too expensive. And so that's why they had to eat such limited food and weren't allowed to have the good stuff. One of the children said that at one point uh, one of the younger siblings took a piece of candy from Louise's stash and the younger sibling was choked and then chained to their bed for days on end. They would be denied food and water. They would be chained up for insane amounts of time. Some of these kids were chained up for weeks at a time. And they were only unchained to eat when they were allowed and to go to the bathroom if they could make it on time. The children were only allowed to shower or bathe once a year. Once a year. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how awful and disgusting they felt about themselves knowing that they were chained up to their beds where they were probably living and sleeping in urine and feces for ungodly amounts of time and then not being able to clean yourself up. Jordan said in an interview that there were some days that she woke up and she couldn't breathe because of how horrendous the house smelled. It was a literal pigsty. The oldest of the siblings, Jennifer, said in an interview with Nancy Grace that she was forced to also punish her younger siblings if they did something wrong. And by wrong, I mean by the standard of David and Louise wrong. Like when the younger sibling took a piece of candy from the mom's stash. They said that the younger sibling stole the candy and had to be punished for stealing because stealing was a sin. And all of this went on for decades. Yeah, you heard that right. Literal decades. These trash human beings beat starved, neglected, and tortured their children for years upon years. 
and no one noticed. Maybe because they didn't let anyone into the house. And when someone would come into the house, they would make it seem like they were just a normal, happy family. Louise's sister said in an interview that she stayed with the family for several months and she never noticed anything that would make her think the kids were being abused. She said she did see a lack of affection in the home, but it wasn't enough to make her think anything was going on. She also said she thought it was weird that while staying with the family that she wasn't allowed to have friends over, but respected the wishes of her sister and brother-in-law and would always go out to see her friends instead of inviting them over. But still, how do you not see the signs of abuse when they're right in front of you? Or did David and Louise just cover it up that well? Finally, though, on January 14th, of 2018. Enough was enough. Jordan had overheard her mother say something about them moving to Oklahoma and she knew that this was her only chance to act. She knew that if anything was going to happen, if they had any hope of getting out of this house, it was now. Because they were planning on moving to Oklahoma the next day. Now, Jordan and Jennifer had talked about how to get out and how, like, what they needed to do to save themselves and save their siblings. And so they had worked together to come up with this plan. And it just so happened that some of the older siblings had been trusted enough to have smartphones. That way, when David and Louise weren't at home, they could still be in contact with the kids and could tell the kids what to do and give instruction and this, that, and the other. So one of the older brothers had gotten an upgrade to a cell phone and had a spare one just kind of laying around. And instead of throwing it away, he gave it to Jordan. And it didn't have any kind of service or anything on it. It, it wasn't active but she was still able to access the internet on it. I don't know if they had Wi-Fi in the home for David and Louise to use, or if maybe she was able to get Wi-Fi from a neighbor's house or something, but she ended up discovering Justin Bieber. And I'm not a, few, a huge believer. I have liked him on and off over the years, but he's not my favorite artist of any kind. But Jordan would watch these interviews of him and listen to his music. And he was always talking about God and how God loves people and how God is a good God and, you know, just being really encouraging about his faith. And that really made Jordan start thinking, you know, 
that's the God that I want to have something to do with, not what my parents are telling me I have to have something to do with. And so that's really kind of what got her mind thinking that maybe there was more out there than just what she had been told all of her life. So she actually ended up doing her own YouTube channel, I guess, and she would make videos of herself singing and she would post them online. So eventually people started commenting on her videos like, you know, why, why are you always inside or why, like, why are your clothes always dirty and stuff like that. And so she ended up talking to someone that she met online about what was going on in her home. And the person who she ended up talking to was like, hey, you need to call the police. You need to get help. And up until this point, Jordan didn't even know what a police officer was. That's how sheltered these kids were. Now, Jennifer had seen... Uh, TV shows while the parents were away, whenever they weren't home, they would watch TV and they would get on the internet and do all the things that they weren't supposed to do. So at one point, while David and Louise were gone, Jennifer turned on the TV and started to watch the show Cops. And so Jennifer knew that there were people out there who could potentially help them. So Jordan and Jennifer worked together to devise this plan where Jordan would sneak out of one of the bedroom windows and take this deactivated phone and call 911. And that's what she did. Now, before you say anything, yes, the phone was deactive. It didn't have service or anything on it. But you can still call 911 even if your phone doesn't have any service. The emergency call option is always usable. So if you're ever in a situation where you don't have service or your phone service has been cut off and you need emergency personnel, you can still call 911. So whenever Jordan called 911, she said that she was shaking so badly that she couldn't even get her thumb to press the buttons to dial the number. She was so scared and she thought for sure that if her parents saw her, if they found her outside, if they knew what she was doing, that they would kill her right then and there. Even if they knew the cops were coming, they wouldn't care. They would kill her. So Jordan was trying to tell the dispatcher where she lived. And she had taken an envelope from inside the house with her and was trying to read off the address, but she didn't know what her address was. And she didn't know what, what, street signs were. She didn't know that she needed to be standing on a sidewalk and not just out in the middle of the street. So the dispatcher finally asked if she saw a stop sign anywhere 
around her and Jordan knew what a stop sign was and went to the stop sign and the dispatcher was like okay stay there until the officer gets there that way he can know where you're at so they were able to use GPS to locate the phone um, and thus finding Jordan and so when the officer got there he thought, you know, this girl just ran away from home. He's gonna take her back home, get her all settled in and everything, and then his shift would be over. But that's the farthest thing from what this was. Jordan said that she ran away from home because her parents were abusing her and two of her younger siblings were currently chained up. And the police officer was like, what? What do you mean they're chained up? How are they chained up? Where are they chained up at? And since she had the cell phone, he asked her if she had any pictures. And she was like, oh yeah, yeah, I knew that I would need pictures because I was afraid that the I, I was afraid you wouldn't believe me so I took pictures so you could see so you wouldn't take me back there and so we can get my siblings out and she was just talking so much and giving as much information as she possibly could and this officer is like what in the world have I just walked into what is this and I can't blame him I mean that's a lot of information coming from this 17 year old girl who looked and sounded more like she was you know 12 or 13. So after talking with Jordan for a while the police officer called him for backup and they went to the home and the dispatch received the call at a little bit before six o'clock in the morning I think and by the time he got to her and they talked and he called for backup they got to the house and the sun was coming up so early bird gets the worm in this case late night officer saves the girl so they police officers knock on the door Jordan is sitting in one of the cop cars. She's safe. Nobody can get her. She's good. The police officer sitting in the car with her was very reassuring and very kind to her and was like, you know, you're okay. Everything's going to be okay. You're going to be all right. They're not going to get you. You're not going back there. It's okay. So the officers knocked on the Turpin door for two minutes and ten seconds before someone finally answered. And I know two minutes and ten seconds doesn't seem like a very long time, but whenever you're waiting for someone to answer the door, it's kind of like microwave minutes. You know how microwave minutes seem to be like three times as long as regular minutes? I have a feeling that's kind of how the officers felt. So once the door opens David and Louise both are standing there and they're like what's going on like why are you knocking on our door at this hour you know we're like you woke us up what what's going on 
And so the officer was like, you know, well, we received a call and we needed to do a welfare check on your children and make sure that everyone's okay and that there's not any kind of, you know, make sure nothing's going on. So in the Nancy Grace interview that she did with 2020 and everything it's like an hour and a half long it's on youtube i'll link it in the description if you want to watch it um you got to see the body cam footage from the officers and they walk into this house and first of all david and louise look like wannabe hippies like i try not to judge people by their looks but these people were not like very put together people at all and I know that they just woke up and everything but I mean bedhead doesn't even begin to describe what they looked like it was just yeah it was awful so they walk into this house and the floor is covered in crap like literal crap there were human feces, animal feces, rotten food, mounds of trash just rotting in the floor. The walls of the home that were once white were now a disgusting shade of brownish gray because of the filth. As they walked through the house and looked in every room, they were able to see that the filth just continued throughout the whole home. And they even said that in the bathroom, the shower floor was so disgusting, it was covered with black mold. And that just utterly breaks my heart for these kids. Like, oh my goodness. So they're the officers, some of them keep David and Louise closer by the front door and they're talking to them and asking them questions while others are exploring the house and slowly running into all of these children. And, you know, they're asking the children, like, you know, are you okay? Do you have any injuries? At one point, one of the officers asked Jordan if she had any injuries and she was like, I don't know what that is. And the officer was like, oh my gosh, you know, are, are you hurt? Like, do, 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 do you need to go to the hospital? Do you think any of your siblings are going to need to go to the hospital? And she was like, oh no, I don't, I don't have any injuries right now. She didn't even know the term for like bruises. She just said that where the chains had been put on her little sisters, they had, like, the chains had, like, gone into them. And the officer didn't quite understand what she was trying to say until she showed him the pictures of where they were chained and where the bruises were. And, like, it was really hard for him to a degree because Jordan had such a limited vocabulary. So she couldn't just tell him everything she needed to tell him she was trying her best but nothing could have prepared any of these officers for what was actually inside that home so 
after doing their walkthrough of the house and everything, um, and seeing that the children did have some injuries and bruises and everything, they ended up finding, at the time, 29-year-old Jennifer. And Jennifer was so malnourished that she looked like a small child. They could not believe the state of some of these kids. And they... I need to not get ahead of myself. So, at this point, yes, they were in a... The kids were in a bad situation, but they didn't necessarily have, like, the proof that they needed to arrest David and Louise. But David was kind of, sort of, trying to hide another bedroom door. And when the police officers noticed this, they were like, um, okay, get out, get, get, get out the way. We need to get to what's in there. So they finally get into this room. And in this room were three more kids, one of which was shackled down to the bed. And he was shackled in a way that he could not turn, he could not roll over, he could not, he, he basically couldn't move. So immediately, police officers were like, cuff them. Like, get those two cuffed and put them in separate cars and take them to the police station. And so they did. And they were able to get the little boy out of the, the, the shackles and everything. And immediately, all 13 of the kids were taken to the hospital. And it's so heartbreaking. Some of these children could barely walk. Some of them had heart complications, heart uh, defects because of the lack of nutrients and nourishment. They all were severely dehydrated. They all had to be in the hospital on medication. Jordan said that she didn't even know what medicine was until she went to the hospital that day. And it just absolutely blows my mind doctors and law enforcement said that if Jordan hadn't have gotten out and called 911 that morning then if they really would have gone to Oklahoma several of the kids would not have survived the trip because of how rough they were because of how malnourished they were and it just it, it blows my mind. Jordan was 17 at the time. She was just 17. She was older than her mother was when she married David. But she showed so much strength. She showed so much courage to break out of this literal hell house 
and do what she had to do to save herself and save her siblings. As for David and Louise, they were charged with 14 felony charges, one count of torture, three counts of willful child cruelty, four counts of false imprisonment, and six counts of cruelty to a dependent adult. They both pled guilty and were sentenced to 25 years to life and will only be eligible for parole after, quote, serving decades in prison. I think decades in prison for decades of torturing their children isn't enough. They shouldn't even be eligible for parole, but, you know, that's just me. That's, that's just me. As for the kids, they have not exactly had it easy after escaping their own personal hell. They, so, some of them were placed into foster care. Others were placed into not like a, it wasn't like a rehab or like a transitional housing kind of thing. I can't remember, it, I can't remember what it was. But basically, the state of California was supposed to give them an aid and help give them housing and food and transportation and everything. And so the adult siblings who received that, they ended up not receiving that. Even though they were in the program, several of them ended up being without a home without a way to get from place to place. They didn't have food. They still didn't have any kind of life skills to help make themselves better and to improve themselves and improve their lives. The younger children who were placed in foster care ended up being abused even further by the foster parents. I did read in one report from Investigation Discovery that the children have filed a lawsuit against the state of California and the foster agency that they were placed through, and I don't know what has come of that, but still, it's atrocious to think that these kids suffered so much for so long and then whenever they finally were able to get out of that house, they still had to endure so much more trauma and so many more difficulties. It's not right. It's not fair. It's just, it's horrible. Both Jennifer and Jordan have said that they don't want to be known for what they've been through. They want to be known for who they are today. They are gaining their independence. They are learning the life skills that they need. And as of last year, Jordan was finally able to get her own apartment and really start gaining her independence. Both sisters have also said that they want their names to be known for their strength. They want 
the Turpin name not to be associated with their parents, but with the strength that they showed in escaping from the hell that they were living in. There is so much more to this case, and I feel like I am such a failure at getting all of the details and going through all of the information and portraying it and relaying it in a somewhat decent way. But again, I'm just a baby podcaster, so maybe one of these days I'll get it down pat. But that will conclude our case of the House of Torture, the Turpin family. All of the case sources will be linked in the description of this video, as well as the 2020 interview with Jordan and Jennifer with Nancy Grace. And yeah, I think that's it. I thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for subscribing. If you haven't subscribed already, please do so. And go ahead and give me a five-star review because you know that really helps your girl out. I also am using a new recording uh, software, so I don't know if that's going to improve the audio any or not. And I have also changed recording locations to where I am in a more uh, fabric padded room instead of on hardwood. So maybe that'll kind of reduce the echo a little bit, but let me guys know what you think. Don't forget, we are available on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and Google Podcast. I thank you guys again for listening and can't wait to bring you the case next week. We'll see you guys then.